This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Governor Tony Evers vetoed multiple bills last Friday. The first veto was for a bill that bans the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Evers' reason for the veto is to avoid creating new censorship rules against educators for teaching, quote, honest, complete facts about important historical topics, end quote. Evers' second veto was for a bill that would extend work hours for minors under 16 years of age. Wisconsin State AFL-CIO President Stephanie Blumendale supports the veto, and reports in a press release that solving the labor shortage, quote, shouldn't involve 14 and 15 year olds working longer into the night, end quote. The third veto was for a bill that would increase legal penalties for people creating butane hash oil or using butane extraction for marijuana products. A new bill has been introduced in the state legislature to protect healthcare workers against threats and attacks, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that workplace violence in the healthcare industry has increased by over 60% from 2011 to 2018. The past two years have added stress and threats of violence to healthcare workers in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Under the Republican-led bill, physical harm and threats against healthcare workers or their family are now a Class H felony. Violations are punishable by up to three years in prison, a maximum of a $10,000 fine, or both. The State Journal reports SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital in Madison reported 117 incidents of physical assault last year. The Associated Press reports that the Cottage Grove Village Board and Planning Commission has given preliminary approval for Amazon to build a distribution center. Amazon's new 93-foot facility would create 1,500 new jobs and operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Amazon has not asked for any tax assistance from the town, according to Cottage Grove Village Administrator Matt Guise. Guys also believes that this facility would economically benefit Cottage Grove and Dane County. Although the village is in support of Amazon's new build, local residents predict unwanted noise and pollution from the construction and facility operations. Two Democratic Wisconsin lawmakers announced a bill to legalize medical marijuana here in Wisconsin less than two weeks after Republican state lawmakers introduced their own bill. The bill was introduced by Democratic Senator John Erpenbach of West Point and Democratic Representative Diane Hesselbein of Middleton. In a press release earlier today, they said that they recognized the need to regulate the industry to provide a safe and legal path for people to obtain their medicine. The bill is currently circulating for co-sponsorship. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,305 new cases of the virus reported throughout the state yesterday, continuing a sharp decline of cases of the Omicron variant in Wisconsin. The seven-day rolling average for cases currently sits at 3,363 new cases per day. 
the percentage of tests coming back positive has also dropped to 14.1% over the weekend, a full 15% drop from just one month ago. Across the state, two new people have died from the virus, bringing the total number of deaths in the state to 11,387. Here in Dane County, there were 172 confirmed cases yesterday, with no new deaths. Across the state, 59.6% of Wisconsinites have received both doses of the COVID vaccine. And now on to today's top stories. Last week, a man on Madison's east side was shot multiple times after an incident involving police officers. Since then, officials have not released any information on the shooting, including whether the man, identified by his family as Quadrum Wilson, was shot by the police. WORT reporter Greg Jaboski was at a protest at the Capitol over the week, where Wilson's family demanded answers. A little after 8 in the morning, last Thursday, February 3rd, at American Parkway and East Park Boulevard in East Madison, Quadrin Wilson, a black man, was shot multiple times in what the Dane County Sheriff still has yet only described as an officer-involved shooting. As of today, a wall of silence from law enforcement still continues to surround the incident, with Wilson's family trying to piece together information on Quadrin's condition and on the reason behind the shooting. Even the department whose members fired the shots has not been officially acknowledged as of airtime, although it appears that officers of the State Department of Corrections were involved. The only alleged legal violation against Wilson that has appeared so far is a violation of extended supervision. Yesterday, Sunday, a protest was held at the state capitol demanding answers. Outlines of bodies and statements demanding justice for Quadron were chucked into the sidewalk and sprayed with food coloring onto the capitol grounds February snow. At least five family members of Wilson's were present. Based on press reports and their own search for witnesses with information about what happened, the family understands that Wilson was shot at least five times in the back, with maybe as many as 20 shots fired. Quadron Wilson's aunt, Sharon Irwin Henry, and Quadron's cousin, Lorian Carter, describes what they have tentatively learned about the incident. They got out of the car and they immediately started shooting. Yeah, that's what They didn't announce themselves. They heard, put your hands up, and then they just started shooting. And then they said, we didn't know they were police. Because they had plain clothes, unmarked vehicles, and they were shooting like the mom. And they didn't announce themselves. Late this afternoon, Madison attorney Steve Eisenberg, who has been retained by Quadron Wilson, gave his still tentative understanding of what took place on Thursday morning. My understanding is that he was backed into by a police vehicle smashing the front of his car. At the same time, another police vehicle smashed into the back of his car, sandwiching him between two police vehicles. A number of policemen got out of those vehicles or came from somewhere else, surrounded the car, told him to put his hands up. In the meantime, the right, left rear driver's side window was broken out. Officers told him to put his hands up. He was in the process of putting his hands up and cooperating, and then shots rang out. I have heard, but can't confirm, anywhere from five to 20. Five bullets, I'm told, struck Mr. Wilson three of which at least had to be surgically removed from an area in his lumbar spine dangerously close to his spinal cord. Eisenberg says, as of this afternoon, the identity of the officers and even the department of those officers who fired the shots remains an official mystery. Uh, In the news stories, Madison Police and Dane County Sheriff said it wasn't us, which leads to the conclusion it was a member of the Department of Criminal Investigation that shot a member or members. 
However, I can't confirm or deny that. According to Maine Morris, Quadrant's brother, as of yesterday, the family was being denied even basic information about Quadrant's condition. What we know is that he's alive. That's it. He's alive. We don't know if he needs uh, ongoing surgeries. We don't know if uh, he's in any other health conditions. We don't know if he's paralyzed. We at least got that answer, but he has rights. And we as family have rights to know how he's doing. According to the family, Quadron's mother, Stacy Morris, received an anonymous call from a hospital staffer who was possibly standing up to police orders, who told the mother that Quadron has shown some movement in his extremities. Then, late yesterday afternoon, after the protests at the Capitol, Wilson was taken from his hospital bed while recovering from his emergency surgery and taken to Dane County Jail. Attorney Eisenberg tells what he knows as of today. Sunday, surprisingly so, he was released from UW Hospital after being there since Thursday morning and transferred to the Dane County Jail where he presently sits. Why is he in the Dane County Jail? I'm trying to find that out as we speak. At yesterday's protest, Madison activist Alexandra Wilburn, one of the organizers of the action, said that the community demands answers. Uh, it was an ambush. The sheriff's department, which is conducting the investigation, should immediately, immediately release the names of the officers directly involved and their involvement. Who fired the weapons? We deserve to know. We deserve to know where and where they are in their investigation. We need to know what supervisor okayed these agents to leave the office that day and go on this. And we need everyone who hears this to demand this and to tell other people to demand this. And every organizational leader needs to themselves publicly demand this. And they need to also <laughs> privately contact the sheriff's office to say, release all of these names. That was Alexandra Wilburn. Yesterday at 6.30, at the regular 6th of the month protest on Williamson Street commemorating the police killing of Tony Robinson, who was shot in March 2015, an additional name rang out, that of Quadrin Wilson. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, employees at the Madison VFW 1318 discovered a time capsule buried within the building from 1969. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Post Commander Carlos Tucker earlier today about what they found. I'm joined by Carlos Tucker, the Post Commander for VFW 1318, about the time capsule they discovered. Carlos, thank you so much for talking with me. No, it's a pleasure to be here. So just to start things off here, how was this time capsule found? So you knew it was there, but you didn't know exactly where it was, correct? 
Right. So word started kind of circulating. Um, we've got some members that have been with the Post since their parents were members. You know, they were children. They grew up at the Post. Um, and they remembered a time capsule being put in uh, after they had built the building. And, and they kind of let us know, hey, by the way, you know, there's a time capsule somewhere in this building. We need to we need to keep that in mind. So as we were moving closer and closer to uh, to the teardown of the building, um, we had to keep reminding ourselves, oh, yes, there's a time capsule somewhere. Uh, so I got the call from uh, Gundel Metz, who's who's a longstanding member and and leader in our in our VFW. That uh, that hey, they they found that time capsule. The construction workers are down there. Um, they've put out word to to some local news outlets. Let's let's get down there and crack this thing open. So it was it was a pretty exciting morning uh, when that happened. Uh, typically, I've got a lot going on, but I made sure to immediately clear my schedule to make it down for uh, for for opening it up. Uh, so yeah, it was it was it was we, we were expecting it, but even with a little bit of of knowledge that it was out there, the, the it didn't it didn't douse the excitement at all. Uh, you know, it was definitely pumped when uh, when I got the call. And what was found inside of this time capsule? What sort of things did they leave for you? So it was uh, it was mostly just kind of some things that said, "Here is a a, a snapshot of of who we are as an organization." on this day now while the building was constructed in 1966 the time capsule itself uh had a cornerstone on it with 1966 on it but opening it up the information within number one the the biggest giveaway was a wisconsin state journal uh that was dated june 6 1969 so it was actually about three years later after construction that the time capsule went in so first item um was was not the paper that was kind of at the bottom so i was thinking i'm looking at things from 1966 here until i saw the paper but uh, they had some minted coins all from 1969 uh nicely sealed individually uh penny nickel dime quarter 50 cent piece um and then a, a plastic chip in there uh which i think was was used from the mint to identify these were minted specifically for your purpose uh to in memoriam or or to, to mark the date. Um, and that was pretty cool. Uh, there were uh, small phone books, lists of members that were lifetime members at the time. You can, when you join the VFW, you can become a lifetime member or you can pay annually. Um, so they had a list of all their lifetime members. They had a list of all of their members, their active members. And then they had a list of all of the women's auxiliary, um, which has now changed. It's no longer the women's auxiliary. It's just the auxiliary. Um, for men and women. Uh, so there were those bits of information. We had a photocopy in there, or I guess it was a, a print back then of, uh, of the namesake of, of our VFW post and, uh, and a photo of him, um, which was pretty, pretty cool, uh, which was Lieutenant Marion C. Cranefield. Um, and then they had uh, a, a print of, of our original charter uh, in there as well. And, uh, and in the phone books, you know, you kind of, kind of look through and see, you know, what years some individuals had served. Uh, and, and one of the ones that stood out, uh, to me was, was obviously the oldest. And I think there was a member who had served in 1927, I believe, uh, was the year. So, so it, it was a nice little snapshot of here's who we are right now. Here's who our members are. Here's kind of the general structure of our organization, and it was really just kind of a, a nice, a nice little snapshot picture of, of 
who were we back then? Uh, they didn't include a lot of photos. There were two in there, but they were kind of stuck together. And I did not want to peel those apart until we could get everything to a, a, a drier environment, let them kind of dry out. We didn't want to uh, destroy anything that was in there. So, uh, but, but it was, it was a nice little bit of information. Uh, and it was also interesting to see just how, how similar things are kind of run, organized, structured, uh, but just numbers, names, those kinds of things, and, and dates of service and entirely different. So it was nice to see kind of that, that bond, you know, the connections that we still have, you know, with those in the past versus uh, where we are now. So I have just one final question for you here. All of these items that were found in this time capsule, why are they important to the VFW? Why did you feel the urge to go out and find them before it was moved to the new location? Well, I tell you what, it's, it's, it's history in, in, in general is, is something that we all understand. We all know, we all see, we're all exposed to, uh, on a regular basis from the time that we, you know, start attending school as a, a rigid part of our, our education. But it's, it's the true history that we encounter in life that you start to make the connections personally where it becomes something personal and service in the military itself is a very, very personal choice. It is for some a, a life-changing experience for others. It is a life enhancing, enriching experience. And all of us as service members, as veterans are bound by that. Um, many back in the past, especially at that time frame, when these things went into the box, it was slightly different. You know, it wasn't a choice for a lot. Uh, the atmosphere with Vietnam was a completely different world atmosphere. A lot of people were not joining by choice. And yet we are still all bound by our service. So it's important to keep in mind the reasons that people served, to understand that we are all joined as brothers and sisters in service through that. And that after our service, we've chosen to remain members of the VFW to continue to serve the community as well as other veterans. So it's nice to be able to understand and to see that and to have that concrete evidence, to touch it with your own hands. Here are individuals who are also bound by this service, albeit for completely different reasons, in a completely different environment, with completely different experiences under their belt. But yet we still have this common bond that in spite of whatever our service was, we still are dedicating ourselves to the service of the community around us. And it's really nice to be able to see that. We don't often get the chance to have that kind of concrete evidence to feel that bond with our own past and our own history in that type of a manner. It's pretty impressive to crack open a box and just think the air itself within this box has not been released in 53 years. The items within this box have not been touched by human hands in 53 years. And yet here I am for the first time discovering exactly what it was placed here for. And whatever the reasons interpersonally that the people who placed those items in that box were, this was the realization of their dream for those items. Here it is being opened by another service member to get to see exactly what it was that they put out to be discovered later. It's pretty phenomenal. So it's the realization of individuals' dreams, but also it's realizing exactly what our bond is and where it is that we are connected in spite of being separated by time. Well, Carlos, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Um, overall, the, you know, a lot of 
things have changed in time when you consider the age of the VFW. We've been active in the state of Wisconsin for 100 years. Like, this is our centennial year for the VFW in Wisconsin. And everything has changed so much. Uh, back in World War II, everybody, you know, everybody went to war. It was difficult to, you know, throw a rock and not hit somebody who, who had served. But nowadays, with changes in technology and world climate, it's closer to 1% of the population in America that have served. So there are way, way fewer of us now than there used to be. Veterans, we are a very, very small minority of the you know, American population. But we are still here, and we still stick with the same traditions. We still stick as a VFW member with our service and our dedication to the community around us. And it's important that people know that we're still here and we're still a strong entity. We still have the power to assist. We still have the power and the caring to assist with the community. And we're also there just for a really great place to hang out. Overall, if you have a veteran connection, don't have a veteran connection, our locations are open to the public to come in. And once we get our doors open on Ski Lane, it's a really nice location. We're really proud of, of kind of the interior decor and everything. It was a fun build out for us. And we're excited to share that with the community. It's a great place to come in and grab a snack or a drink, hang out, watch a football game. It's a really nice little pub, a nice little uh, bar and grill area that, uh, that we've got there. And we built out a patio, everything else. So we're hoping that a lot of the public will be excited to come in and check out the new digs and hang out for a little while when we do get the doors open. I've been joined by Carlos Tucker, the post commander at VFW 1318. Carlos, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, it's been my, prevl- my pleasure and privilege. Thanks so much. <laughs> You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A hippie riot with past isn't past. Influencer houses and micro celebrities with Bridging the Gap. And two brand new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Last week, Senate Minority Leader Janet Pewley announced that she was not running for re-election. On Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, she sat down with hosts Jays Isiri Ramos and Nate Wegehout about her time in the Senate. I, you know, I want to get to the why you're leaving, but I would like to mm-hmm. go to the beginning. Um, what, you know, what got you involved in politics here in Wisconsin? Well, it started um, about 15, 20 years ago when I was asked to run for city council in Ashland. It was one of those things where someone who was deciding not to run uh, knew of me. I had talked to city council before in my job at uh, at uh, WIDA, Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, and I decided to try it. And I ran, I won, and I loved it. I mm. found that 
serving um, in elected office was something I'd never considered, but it was the most fulfilling and has led to this, the most fulfilling career of my life. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, here in, here in Madison, I look at the map and I'm like, wow, that's such a big, big space that you represent. Um, and it's yeah. so, you know, sometimes it feels so far away from Madison. Can you tell us a little bit about um, where you represent? And then also these, um, you know, you framed your area as as a place where leaders have really been been fostered. Mm-hmm. And can you can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Well, um, it, it is a large, it's a huge district. It's uh, the largest Senate district in the state, and it encompasses a very large area. Some senators, as you were describing, you know, folks in in Madison can perhaps walk the perimeter of their district in a day. I cannot, I cannot drive my district in wow. a day. It, it, it's too big to get all the way around it. And, um, but that means that it covers a huge area, both. Uh, geographically and socially in terms of the economic, the economics of the area, the, uh, the kind of, of work that people do, um, even, even their, uh, historical background. There are, uh, Native American tribes within my district, um, Lacoudere, excuse me, Lac de Flambeau, Bad River, um, Red Cliff, and the St. Croix. They're, those tribes are within the, the boundaries. At the same time, we have land that was uh, slated to be mined for iron ore. We have a very busy port, uh, international seaport in Superior, one of the largest and busiest ones on the Great Lakes. Um, very diverse area, farming, um, uh, tourism, the arts, small businesses everywhere. It's a very, very diverse and wonderful district. So, Senator Buley, being up in sort of the north woods of Wisconsin there. When people, you know, especially here around Madison, when they think of the north woods, they sort of think of heavily Republican. What is it like to be a Democrat representing an area of northern Wisconsin that is largely surrounded by Republican districts? Not only a Democrat, but the the top Democrat. Well, it, it's 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 very interesting, I'll tell you. You you learn a lot about um, how to relate to a, ri- a wide range of people on oftentimes very divisive issues. And but up in the in northern Wisconsin, there are it, like I said, it's such a diverse area. Um, for example, if you take Bayfield and Ashland, the whole Shawamigan Bay area is heavily Democrat, very very strong Democrat, and it's been that way for quite a while. Um, and again, if you go back to the heritage, it's very Scandinavian, very, a lot of, uh, Finnish people. The Finns were very responsible for starting m- many of the cooperative movements in northern Wisconsin and in the northern Midwest in general. Um, over in Superior, they're very strong unions. There's a lot of, uh, industry on the port. So there's a lot of building. There's a lot of, um, work that's being done on the, on the ships. Um, heavy, strong unions, and that means that um, although we had Act 10, uh, the teachers are still highly involved in um, organizing and getting people together. It's kind of, um, it's in the culture to be a progressive Democrat in many areas of the, st- of the district, but there are also a lot of the, the folks that 
you know, typically make up what is considered to be a rural population. And those are folks who are involved in logging, in farming, in owning small businesses through many of these small towns. And again, in the deep rural areas, it is typically very Republican, but it makes for a very diverse and very exciting district. You recently announced that you are not uh, running. What what went into that decision making? Um, and for people who maybe didn't see um, that statement or ha- haven't read about that, can you tell us why you're not seeking re-election? Well, when I when I ran and when I went into politics um, about 15, well, 17 years ago now, um, I knew what age I was then, and I could see that arc of my life. And I knew that I was entering politics rather later in my life. I was in my 50s at the time. And then when I looked at the different races that I'm running, I'm, I realized that, well, at first it was a two-year term. Now it's a four-year term. So um, I'm, I'm never going to agree to do something unless I can give it my all for that length of time. And when I turned 70, that was when my husband and I, we had planned that when I turned 70, we were going to look very seriously at my retiring at that age. Um, I turned 70 in November. Um, I, I follow what my husband and I agreed to. I made a commitment to him that we would very seriously look at that. And the, that circumstance just sort of played out that this is the time. Um, I would be 75 at the end of my term should I choose to run. And, I want to make sure that I can live up to that commitment. And I also wanted to make sure that the person with the most vitality with and with that readiness to run, with the ability to represent all of the new ideas with, with, um, with confidence, I was not born into a time that used cell phones and uh, the Internet. Um, I had to learn it. I want someone who was born with into that era with the instincts of the kinds of ways we communicate now with what the issues are on a very, very personal level. Um, I, I know a little bit about what it's like to graduate with debt um, in, from school, but it's nothing like what it is now. And um, debt, college debt, doesn't exist for the same reasons now. It needs different solutions. And I want to, I want someone to run who's going to be ready to commit and bring that personal experience that's relevant to the issues today. Thank you so much, Senator uh, Buley, for joining us this hour. We have unfortunately reached the end of our time. Um, but I want to wish you a really happy retirement and a, a you know, few last months. I hope they are really well and everyone is very nice to you. Well, they are being nice to me, and believe me, there's a lot of work to do in the next 11 months. Um, We have to elect Tony Evers, and of course we're going to do that, and we're going to maintain, if not increase, the number of Democrats in the Wisconsin legislature, and that's what I'm committed to. On today's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson looks at the 1960s LA hippie riots, as well as the impact they had on society moving forward. There's something happening here 
But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down That was a clip for What It's Worth There's Something Happening Here by Stephen Seals with his Buffalo Springfield Band. This Friday, February 11th, marks the turning point of the so-called Hippie Riots on Sunset Strip, Los Angeles, in 1967. Those were actually violent police crackdowns on youths as the counterculture emerged. The county was waging a battle over culture and property on the Strip, and in 1966 banned teens from rock clubs by ordinance, but this was later declared unconstitutional. Next, property owners pressured by police who used shocking amounts of force on kids on the Strip, supposedly to enforce curfew, including raids on alcohol-free coffee houses. Although the protests had begun three months earlier, the February 11th demonstration was different. It was planned and incorporated demands by gay rights and people of color organizations, recalled noted writer, activist Mike Davis, an organizer for SDS back then. Two leading LGBTQ groups, Pride and the Council on Religion and the Homosexual, endorsed the February 11th demonstration and added plans for their own simultaneous march along Sunset in the gay bar area of Silver Lake. The loosely knit coalition also planned actions in Watts, East LA, and Pecoima, hoping to get angry African-American and Latinx youth involvement. The strip movement was trying to shift from an amorphous happening to a broad coalition of outcast and persecuted street subcultures. Some 80,000 leaflets calling for a demonstration on Saturday night saturated the clubs and made their way clandestinely through every high school in the county. More than 3,000 teens, along with unprecedented numbers of college students and adults, assembled at the protest center, the folk rock club Pandora's Box. For the first time, there was an organized rally. Speakers included Al Mitchell, leader of concerned celebrities and music industry executives, calling themselves CAF, civil liberties lawyer Marvin Chan, and ACLU counsel Phil Croner. The demonstrators, carrying signs that read, Stop Beating the Flower Children and Stop Blue Fascism, were both exultant and disciplined. Meanwhile, speakers urged another 500 protesters at the Black Cat Bar to make a united community stand against brutality. This was a year before New York's Stonewall riots, and one of at least 20 protests around the country for LGBTQ rights during the period. After the turning point on February 11th, more protests ensued and a few black and Latinx flower children began to join the scene despite police harassment and racist treatment by club owners. Some black leaders came to support a broad anti-police brutality coalition. In March, Georgia legislator and civil rights leader Julian Bond spoke to an admiring crowd of youth at the Fifth Estate Coffee House. From February onwards, every Sunset Strip protest self-consciously identified with the victims of far more deadly police brutality in south-central L.A. Radical groups, especially SDS and the International Socialists, began to play more prominent roles in the protests and actively recruited high schoolers, but the local establishment media stopped covering it. Again, quoting Davis, as the mainstream went counterculture, much of the counterculture, including its music, moved, however temporarily, to the left. 
the LAPD and the sheriffs had to ship deployments to deal with the Black Panther Party in South Central and high school unrest on the east side, so the police spent less time on Sunset Strip. As often happens in Los Angeles, it all comes down to real estate. The city council declared eminent domain to acquire and demolish the Pandora's Box Coffee House in August of 1967, diffusing the situation, although the protests had another climax a year later. In the months leading up to the February 11th turning point, the Sunset Strip had already had demonstrations attracting up to 3,000 youth and celebrities, including Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda, who was handcuffed by police. The hippie riot inspired an enduring legacy of music. This includes rock standards like For What It's Worth, There's Something Happening Here by Stephen Steeles, performed by his Buffalo Springfield band, Plastic People by Frank Zappa, performed with Mothers of Invention, and others. Today's outro is a bit of that Zappa song. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. Down Sunset Boulevard to Crescent Heights And there at Pandora's Box We are confronted with A vast quantity of plastic people It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Micro-celebrities are a growing trend on social media as marketing firms look for new ways to reach people. On this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen looks at TikTok creators, influencer houses, and the rise of micro-celebrities. The Hype House reality show recently dropped on Netflix, exploring the inside of the popular TikTok content creator house. Content creator houses are not new to the scene, but their existence does tend to baffle those who don't actively participate in the social media world. Social media has given rise to a number of micro-celebrities, which are people that are popular to a niche group of audiences. Fame and following are no longer reliant on signing to the right agency, but rather targeting the right audience to share your content. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring Gen Z culture. The term micro-celebrity was first coined by Teresa Sempt in 2008, a lecturer at Macquarie University. She defined micro-celebrities as, quote, a new style of online performance in which people employ webcams, video, audio, blogs, and social networking sites to amp up their popularity among readers, viewers, and those to whom they are linked online, end quote. In 2008, YouTube had just started to take off as a platform where anyone can upload a video. YouTube deploys its algorithms to help viewers find video content that might be related to their interests, 
and help video creators push their content to potential audiences. Because of the wide variety of content that people upload to YouTube, there were niches for everyone, ranging from people reacting to a new music video all the way to a cat falling over a chair. You can find someone particularly well-known to a certain niche that is completely unheard of in another part of YouTube. While these people aren't exactly big-time famous, they definitely possess more fame than the average person. These people are one of the first micro-celebrities to exist. With the rise of social media, Instagram became another place for micro-celebrities to gather and emerge. Because of the fame they possess and the niche group of audiences they attract, marketing companies find these micro-celebrities to be a great asset to promote their products. These micro-celebrities are called influencers because they have such a loyal following base, but are often not as expensive to hire compared to big-name celebrities, they become an appealing option from a marketing standpoint. Over the years, the number of micro-celebrities has grown exponentially and has gained a lot more attention, some even comparable to big-name celebrities, Emma Chamberlain, Cody Ko, and Nikki Tutorials to name a few. Now with TikTok, it's become even easier to create content that can gain popularity rapidly. In other words, go viral. TikTok content creators are the latest micro-celebrities to emerge from social media. When TikTok first took off, some of the most popular content creators were Charlie and Dixie D'Amelio, Addison Rae, Lil Huddy, and more. These popular TikTokers were gathered together by Thomas Petro to form a content creator house, now better known as The Hype House, to which Netflix made a docu-series about. We have 10, 20-year-olds living in a $5 million house together, filming content all day. It just doesn't sound real. Hype House is like a social media collective that is also kind of like an incubator. People thought the Hype House was just like white kids with money when it wasn't that at all. It was just a bunch of kids with different stories. The idea of a content creator house has always been under a lot of public scrutinies, and it isn't without its reasons. People see the obsession over gaining fame and popularity through social media. Rebecca Jennings from Vox wrote an article after watching the docuseries on Netflix. Jennings writes, quote, Hype House is a show about people who got famous filming themselves and whose ultimate goal is to become famous enough for someone else to hold the camera. Though they have, thanks to Netflix, achieved that goal, the series fails to show any real meaning to their whole performance and instead shows how hollow it really is, bereft of joy or value." End quote. With more and more people seeking to gain fame through creating content, the pressure is on to discover whether you are unique enough to become famous in your niche. As more platforms arise for people to gain recognition, the number of micro-celebrities will only continue to grow. However, it will only become harder as the market saturates. Plus, being internet famous comes with the drawbacks of facing criticisms and losing parts of your privacy. As the Hype House show suggests, the road to fame is not always glamorous. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. From sci-fi to magic deer, feature contributor Harry Richardson takes a look at two brand new movies on this week's Monday Movie Review. Oi, Peter。ピートは僕と出会ってから冬かい極まる白物を見つけると家中にある
That was clip from the trailer for The Door into Summer, a new science fiction film from Japan, directed by Miki Takahiro. The movie is in Japanese with English subtitles. It just started showing on Netflix. The movie came out in 2021, but it's based on a 1957 book of the same name by Robert Heinlein. Sadly, six of his books have been adapted into movies, but they have been almost universally panned. As a fan of Heinlein and science fiction, I really wanted this to be the one that broke the pattern, but sadly it doesn't. The story is pretty implausible, with too many coincidences and too big a paradox at the end. If you're not into science fiction, robotics, teleportation, and cryogenetics, it will make no sense at all. It's too bad because the actors are pretty convincing, and our main character, Takalura Soichiro, played by Yamaza Kiento, is totally convincing as the nerdy scientist who is absorbed by his humanoid robot project. His dad died when he was young, and he was taken in by his father's best friend, who was a scientist in robotics. When our story opens, the man who adopted him is long gone, but Takalura is carrying on his work and is very devoted to his adopted sister, a believable if stereotypical Rika Kiahara Keya. He's ripped off by his business partners and decides to escape into deep sleep, which means going into a kind of suspended state, in this case for the maximum of 30 years, to escape the pain of having his life's work torn away. What happens next is fairly predictable and never really builds up much sense of danger or suspense. Sadly, a disappointing movie I can't recommend. Heinlein did a lot of kids' books, what we now call YA, young adults, and some adult books. His best book, to me, was Stranger in a Strange Land. The story was about a human, Valentine Michael Smith, who was born and raised on Mars. He comes to Earth and ends up forming his own strange and fascinating discipline. Today it might be called a cult, but back then it was more of a philosophical belief in an ethical way of life, a sort of deist outlook. Heinlein was an agnostic. He was an Air Force veteran and libertarian, but his book, written in 1961, became a bestseller and was loved by hippies. Now that is a book that I would pay to see made into a movie. They finally did a good job on Dune, Frank Herbert's book from 1964. Maybe a good treatment of Heinlein's work will come soon. One can hope. And now for a new animated film. How did you walk on water? I didn't walk. I danced. And that was a clip from the trailer for River Dance, the animated adventure directed by Eamon Butler and Dave Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum was one of the script writers. This is a beautifully animated film featuring an amusing variation on the internationally known Irish dancing group River Dance. The group is set to go on its 27th annual tour. The movie features music by their composer, Bill Whelan. This film has a lively cast of animated traditional dancers, both human and animal. Our story starts in a small village by the bay, where a gentle older man, voiced by Pierce Bronson, who also voices the head of the magical deer, has the vital job of a lighthouse keeper. He lives with his loving spouse, voiced by Pauling McLean. They dote on their grandson, Keegan, voiced by the newcomer, Sam Hardy. This is the magical lighthouse that keeps the wily huntsman, voiced by Brendan Gleeson, away. The huntsman is after the Megaloceros, Gigantos, an ancient herd of deer whose magic antlers give life to the region's rivers. If the huntsman gets through to the deer, he will hunt them down, and the rivers will dry up, and the living things in them die. He will bring darkness on the land. Sadly, Grandpa passes on, and his memorial service is the scene of some striking dancing scenes and music from American Wake, complete with black umbrellas. 
Later on, there is some lovely dancing by the precocious friend of Keegan, a great young dancer voiced by Lily Singh, who takes him on a magical adventure where he learns how to cope with his loss and learns valuable life lessons. All in all, a beautifully done animated film with a warm-hearted fable that stays true to the spirit of Irish legends. There really were ancient deer, perhaps as recently as 7,000 years ago. They probably didn't dance on their hind legs, though. There's also a nice scene of a real ancient Irish Neolithic site, Newgrange, one of the most amazing places I have ever seen. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Greg Jaboski. Your headline writer tonight was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson and Teresa Yen, and to Nicholas Leap for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.